But I love this story. And one of the reasons that I do love this story so much is because I really do think that there is truth for all of us, no matter who you are, uh, no matter your background, no matter where you came from, no matter if you're a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, um, if you've lived a really great life or you've had a really rough life, I think that there are elements in the story of David that really resonate with all of us and that can really teach us something. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at his story. It's really uh, found beginning in 1 Samuel 16, and it runs for uh, really into 2 Samuel. We see uh, in, into other places and Chronicles, we see his story also uh, there. But there, there's just some great truth um, out of this story. And, and, you know, there's a lot of things that you could do. His, his life is most often classified by his highs and his lows, we see that he killed Goliath. We see that he had an affair with Bathsheba. We see that he had all these other things that were happening, and those are great stories. But really, if you want to understand David, one of the ways that you can understand his life is by looking at his relationships, looking at the people that he had interaction with throughout his life. And that's really how we're going to approach his life as we look at that this summer sum. And so if you've got a Bible, flip with me to 1 Samuel 16. If you don't have a Bible, you've got a phone or a, a, an app on something, a device that you have, you can follow along there. We're in 1 Samuel 16. If you don't have any of that with you today, uh, most of the scriptures that we'll read should be on the screen behind me, and I'll try to stay out of the way so that you can read those uh, with us. But in 1 Samuel 16, we're, we're kind of introduced to what's happening with the children of Israel. There's something taking place. They for so long, did not have a king. They were uh, God's people, and Moses was leading them, and then Moses died, and Joshua was leading them. And then we see that there are other ways that God is choosing to kind of facilitate the administration of his people. There's judges, and there's all these different people. And then we see that the people look around them at all the other nations that they are kind of living among, and they see that all of them, <clears throat> excuse me, have some kind of king. They have some kind of, you know, monarch. There was something, someone, some figure that was leading them. And so, yeah, you know, God, he's leading us, but we can't see him. And so we need a figurehead. And so they want a king. And so Saul is uh, anointed to be king, and he leads the children of Israel. But there comes a day when the favor of God, because of Saul's own decision-making, because of really kind of how he's turned his heart away from God, he's no longer following God, following after God, or leading in the way that God would choose for his people, he uh, is going to be removed as king. But it doesn't happen right away. We actually see kind of a spiritual handoff of the authority of God and the anointing of God for the next king of Israel before there is actually a transition of that office. And so we read that in 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. So if you've got a Bible, flip along here, follow along, and let's read together. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Now stop here for just a second. He's still the king. But God says, I've rejected him. And so Samuel here, this prophet that God is speaking to, who plays a key role in uh, the nation of Israel here, he says, how long are you going to grieve over the fact that I've already rejected him? So this is what he says. He gives him inst some instructions on how he should respond here. He says, fill your horn, horn with oil and go. And I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, for all of our angling and trying to kind of be in the right place and for you know, us to try to get the right job and to get, live in the right neighborhood and to live in the right house and to have the right cars and to have all the, you know, get the, the right trajectory with our job. As much as we attempt to do that, I think what we see here 
is that God is ultimately the one who gives authority. God is ultimately the one who gives leadership. He's ultimately the one who gives influence. He's ultimately the one who is kind of choosing who should lead. And, and, and so we see that in this story. We see so much of that. And it's easier for us, which we'll get to in a little bit, it's easier for us to read the Old Testament scriptures and to read the narratives of the Old Testament and go, yeah, I believe that. But in modern day, in our present day, we kind of look at our elections, we look at all the different things that are taking place around us, and we are convinced that God has less to do in present day than he had to do in this day. And I think we have to check our heart in that regard. Now, am I saying that every person who's leading is God-ordained, God-chosen? I, I don't think so. I don't know. I'm not sure how all that works within the sovereignty of God. But here's what I know according to Scripture, that God ultimately chooses influence. He chooses leadership. And offices and titles are not the only place of influence. They're not the only way that people lead. And so we see God doing a work here while someone else is in a position of authority. There is another who God has anointed to lead in the future, and we're going to watch that story transpire where ultimately he is chosen by God and he is doing some things and leading and gaining influence before he ever actually holds the title that we would think he has to hold to get that influence. Let's continue reading in verse 2. And Samuel said, so Samuel's talking back to God here. I know you've never done that. I've never done that. As soon as God says something, I say, yes, sir, and I go do it. I don't ever talk back, and I know you, you don't as well. But Samuel, a prophet of God, a real spiritual man, he actually talks back here. Listen to what he says. He says, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded, and he came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And listen to this, because this is so important. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, in a minute, we're going to get to the part of the story where Samuel anoints David to be the next king. And I don't know, when I read this story as a kid, when I read as a teenager, maybe even as an early young adult, when I heard this sermon preached, I kind of thought it went something like this. Samuel comes to Jesse's house, and David's not there. And so he starts kind of working through the brothers. We're getting to this story. I'm foreshadowing here. That's a, that's a preacher tactic, okay? I'm helping you see what's to come, all right? You're not with me today. That's all right. I'm, I'm, I'm loving it up here. It's good stuff from their back. But here's what happens. Here's what happens. I always assumed that he just went to his house and David was out with the sheep, and that's not what happened. He gets to Bethlehem and tells the elders of the city, Consecrate yourself and come with me. And then he goes to Jesse and the sons that are at the house and consecrates them. It just means he purifies them for a sacrifice that's going to take place. And he invites them to go as well. Okay, so we're going to come back to that in a minute. But that is huge. Because every time I read that, I get angry. And here's why I get angry. Because the last verse that we just read said, He consecrated Jesse and his sons. But guess what? He didn't. He consecrated Jesse and some of his sons, most of his sons, but someone was not there. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell on yourself, okay? Raise your hand if you've ever been left out for anything, anything in life. If your hand is not raised, we hate you, 
Everybody whose hand is raised, we hate you. You've never been left out. You weren't ever the last kid picked. It was like, okay, we'll take, you know, the four girls and the guy who's never played kickball, and you can have that guy. Like, if you've never felt that, we hate you, right? All right? But here's what happens. Here's what happens. We read this story, and the prophet shows up to town. And he says to Jesse, hey, I'm going to invite you to the sacrifice, but first let's consecrate you and all your sons. And Jesse says, okay, consecrate everybody that's here. And doesn't even think to bring David in from the field. That angers me. Because here's what I know. First of all, I know that I'm my father's favorite. I have a brother, but he's not the favorite. I know this. And the reason that I say that is because he'll listen to this podcast later. But I know that I'm the favorite. But the other thing is this. Even if I weren't the favorite, which is hard for me to even fathom. But even if I weren't the favorite, if I were to say to my dad, Dad, I think I want to fly around the world in a sailboat. I think he'd go, you know what? You're an idiot. But go do it. I trust you. I support you. Like, Anytime there's been a big moment in our family, especially when I was younger, especially when I was still living at home, and there was a big moment, I was like, hey, we're having a special guest, we're having, you know, somebody important was coming to the house, we're going to go to a meal, we're going to go experience this, somebody gave us tickets to the Braves game, we're going to go to this thing. My dad at least invited me to come. But here is a really special moment. We know it's special because the elders of the city are worried when Samuel even shows up. They don't even know what he needs, but they know that anytime he shows up, it's a big deal. And so he comes and he says he's going to consecrate Jesse and his sons and invite them to the sacrifice. Now, it's not all the sons, it's most of the sons. And we know this because David is off with the sheep, which we'll hear in a minute. Bob Frisbee told me earlier today that he had some insight into the story of David. He said that David was with the sheep, but sometimes he had to leave the sheep. I'm already grinning thinking about the punchline of this. He says sometimes he had to leave the sheep. And do you know what David said when he left the sheep? Bye, bye. You laugh at that, but you didn't laugh earlier. Okay, that's all right. You'll have to see Bob. He's got more of those. Let's continue reading in verse 6 of 1 Samuel 16. When they came, so Jesse and most of his sons came to the place of the sacrifice. This is what happened. He, Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Once again, proving that you don't have to be tall to be cool. All right. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Now, when I read that, here's what I come away with. That evidently God doesn't evaluate people's ability the way that you and I evaluate people's ability. Comparison kills. Comparison kills. 
And, and here's the reason that we know that. Because you and I have a tendency to look at people the same way that Samuel was. We look at their outward appearance. We, oh, they seem to have everything going for them. They're tall. They're good looking. They seem to have money. They have a great job. And we look at them and we assume that that's what people are looking for. That's what God's looking for. That's the kind of person that God would choose. He's looking for someone that's you know, better spoken than I am. He's looking for someone that's more talented than I am. He's looking for someone that's been a Christian longer than I have. And so those are the kinds of people that God uses. He doesn't use people like me. Now, how did you even arrive at that conclusion? Because you are comparing yourself to that person. You are saying, here's where they stack up in the economy of God, and here's where I stack up in the economy of God. And when God chooses people, evidently he chooses people the way we choose people. So he starts at the top of the list, and I'm way down the list, and if he ever gets to me, I'll serve. I'll do it. I'll give in. I'll do whatever he has. But he won't get to me for a long time because there's all these people who are way more qualified than me. Comparison kills. How many opportunities have you missed because you didn't think that you were qualified and so you didn't even try? How many opportunities have you missed out? How many times have you eliminated yourself from even being considered because you assumed they were looking for someone who had a different set of skills than you did, who had more experience than you did? How many times have we kind of pushed back? How many pity parties have we thrown for ourselves? And I, I get it. You don't have pity parties. I do every now and then. How many pity parties have we thrown for ourselves because we look at someone else and we are so jealous of what they have and what they can do and what we don't have and what we can't do and how little, exp how many pity parties have we, oh, if, if I just had that, if I just, you know, if I could just do that, if I, you know, they sing so good, they play so good, they, they have that skill, they have, and, and we just, I mean, we throw ourselves a humdinger of a pity party thinking that those are the people. That's the kind of person we handicap our chances without understanding the criteria of the choice. Jesse was guilty of that too, right? Because when he finds out the prophet's there, he, he might not have even known what it was about, but he didn't think that we would even get down the line to David. Because here's the thing, I'm assuming that, he, I'm trying to give Jesse the benefit of the doubt. I'm a father, I do stupid stuff as a father, in just total transparency, Corey's not here today. She has our two oldest boys. So I have the two youngest. I have Tucker and Kinley, six and three. And here's how much confidence my wife has in me, okay? On my phone at 8.20 this morning, I have a text from my wife before I left the house that says, don't forget Kinley. <laughs> I am the world's best dad, right? So I know that I do stupid stuff as a father. I get it. I know, I, I get it, I, I understand, but I'm trying to give Jesse the benefit of the doubt that he just, his wife didn't send him a text. Don't forget David. When the prophet gets here, don't you forget David because he's not there. But I'm assuming, maybe I'm wrong, I'm assuming that if the prophet of God showed up and said, hey, come and consecrate yourself and come to the sacrifice, and I'm thinking, I don't even know why you're here, but okay, that's great, we're, you know, this... I mean, we got four kids, that's a lot, but seven, eight sons, it's like, they're all here. I mean, that's just a lot of people. They're here. Okay, so we all get in line, and he's going to consecrate us, and he's going to anoint. And then I think if Samuel's like, I'm looking for the next king of Israel, 
even if I don't think God's going to choose Kinley, I'm thinking I'm going to be like, well, she needs to be here to watch her brother be anointed to be the king of it. Like, I would, I would bring, go get David. Get him in here. He needs to be here for this. But even Jesse was guilty of thinking that whatever those oldest sons had, that's what God would be looking for. And I wonder how many times we do that. Even if it's not, even if it's not about us. I mean, would you be honest today and just go, yeah, I'm guilty of looking with my eyes and assuming that I know what God's looking for. That when someone stands to speak or someone stands to sing or someone is trying to serve, we look throughout our church or maybe other churches, we look in other places in our community, we watch on television or we see now because we're so connected via social media, we look in these places and we see these people who are serving the kingdom in some way and our hearts or our minds jump to this idea that surely God wouldn't use them. Surely that's not the kind of person God uses. I know what kind of person God uses, and it's not someone that looks like that. I mean, how, how long have they even been saved? I mean, we went out to dinner the other night, and did you hear what they were talking about? H- have you ever, I mean, like, yeah, we see them on Sunday, and they clean up nice, but have you ever seen them on Friday? No, I, I work with that guy. No, 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 we, we, we carpool with that mom. That's not the kind of person God uses. That's not the kind of person that God chooses. And yet God evaluates people differently than you and I do. So let's continue reading. This is where it gets really, really good in my opinion. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? I, don't e- I can't even imagine why he has to ask that question. Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. It's, it's almost like he's saying, yeah, there, there's another one, but he's probably not the one you're looking for. We just let him take care of our sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him. For we will not sit down until he comes here. I don't know. I I struggle sometimes to read tone in scripture. I assume this is a little bit of like sarcastic anger. Like you have wasted my time. You didn't even bring all your sons here. But maybe I'm misreading that. Verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said to Samuel, arise And anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. I love that line, and I love that the writer included that. So that we could know that even the group of people who were considered first but not chosen, even those who others may have thought were more qualified but didn't end up getting the job. They had to stand there and watch while David was anointed. Now, here's the tension in that. When you and I try to create those moments where we're just like, yeah, y'all see me? Y'all see what God's doing in me? 
When we try to create those moments, it comes across as sinful. When God creates those moments, I think they're a little bit more satisfying. Because God is raising up David. He's elevating David and his status and his stature. He is giving him a platform from which to lead that he could not have created on his own. And so he is anointed there in the midst of his brothers. Samuel ends up choosing someone that others would not have picked. This is not the only place in Scripture this happens. It happens time and time and time and time again. One of the best examples is Jesus choosing his disciples. And if you read those stories in the gospel, you see that these are men, many of them young men, that you and I, if we had been tasked to start a worldwide religion, would not have chosen those 12. They were fishermen. They were not preachers. They were not evangelistic by any stretch. God had to call them through Jesus to come and be fishers of men, give them even language they would understand. Several of them had failed out of rabbinical school because they were Jewish boys who would have gone and kind of learned under the tutelage of a rabbi, but they weren't continuing to do that when they're called, which means that the rabbi had said, You're, you don't have what it takes. You don't have what it takes to kind of be what we're looking for and to be one of the religious leaders, so you go back and do whatever your family does for a living. And so many of them went back to fishing. And Jesus said, no, if I've got to build this church, if I've got to start this movement, I choose you. And he points at people that we wouldn't have picked. The heritage, the lineage of Jesus Christ that we read about in several places in the early Gospels. But we read, if you start in Matthew and you kind of just read, and this person begat that person and this person begat. Those names that are mentioned there are people that had terrible past, some of them. They had brokenness in their life, some of them. Um, several of them, including David, we know them by some of their greatest failures in life. And yet God said, no, when I'm establishing a line, the blood that runs all the way to the cross needs to be dirty before it becomes clean. And you think he wouldn't choose you. You and I are confident that he's looking for someone else. That they've got to have their act together better than we do because we see their center stage we see how they perform and we know our backstage we know the behind the scenes where we know how messy we are and how broken we are and how many times we totally miss it and we don't see their misses as often and so we assume that they have it all figured out and we are just a mess and I would say to you today that you are the kind of person that he's looking for. You are the kind of person that he's established a pattern to use. And then look at how this part of the story concludes. One little verse here. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, which I pray that for all of us. And Samuel rose up and left. End of that story. It's just like, hey, are all your sons here? And he's like, no, there's still one, but he's with the sheep. And he's like, we're not sitting down until he gets here. David comes in. God says, this is him. He anoints him. 
And it's like Samuel drops the mic and leaves. He's like, I'm out. I'm dropping the horn of oil. I'm going to Ramah. I'm out. Here's what you need to know. There are some people in your life that are just there for a moment. They're just there for a season. There are people that you are so close to right now, you're not even going to be friends in three years. You're going to unfriend them on Facebook if it still exists in 18 months. Like, but they're there for a season. They're there for a moment. Guess what? You are in some people's lives for a moment. Because God may desire for you to help them see that they have way more value than they give themselves credit for. Like, who are you Samuel to? Like, who are you in their life so you can walk up and go, God chooses you? God picks you. You are exactly what God's looking for. And then when they get it, you get to step back and just watch them chase God. Who are you, Samuel, to? Let's continue reading here before we close. A couple of verses here beginning in verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. We begin to see more of the spiritual transition before the actual handoff of leadership takes place. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord not command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful at playing the lyre, which is kind of like a little handheld harp there. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. Verse 18. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. Now there's so much goodness right there, but let me just point out two things. One, when David was anointed to be king by Samuel just a few verses before, it said nothing about his ability to play the lyre. It didn't say he was, you know, ruddy and handsome and he was a good musician. And yet, God anoints him. And there comes a moment in his future where he has the necessary skills to position him right where God needs him. Guess what? You do too. I, I remember, I remember my mom making me take piano lessons. I hated it hated it. But I remember taking piano lessons. And then I remember getting a guitar and learning guitar and sitting for hours playing guitar. And I was like, man, I'm terrible. And then I got a job as a youth pastor that my first Wednesday night had two kids. My second Wednesday night, we had a kid. (laughs) I'm not even kidding. And so my pastor said to me, He was like, hey, can you lead worship? And I was like, "Uh, I I can play the guitar and sing. So, yeah, sure. (laughs) Let me just tell you, I'm not sure the presence of God was anywhere near any of that worship. (laughs) It was bad. 
but there was a moment where I had a skill that God needed, and I was ready. There's probably things that you can do that you've not even fully utilized yet, but there will come a day when someone needs somebody who can do what you can do. And then did you hear what happened when the servant, they, he said, okay, yeah, yeah, go find me somebody that can do that. And I love this. Verse 18, or verse uh, 17, or verse 18. One of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. When people come looking for you, what are they going to say about you? I mean, that's like jarring to me. If, if someone, because we assume they're doing it anyway. If someone's talking to someone else about you, what are they saying? We assume they're doing it anyway, right? We're convinced everybody in the world is talking about us, focusing on us. So what are they saying about you when you're not there? You know what the servant said to Saul? There's this guy. And he can do what we need him to do. But even beyond his ability to do that, he's a man of valor and a man of war. He's prudent in speech. He's a man of good presence. And even beyond all that, the Lord is with him. You insert your own adjectives there to describe you. But I encourage you to live in such a way that when people are talking about you, they have something good to say. And they don't have to make it up. Let's continue reading. He said, I want someone who can play the liar. And then the servant calls all of David's other things. Now, the place that I see this best expressed outside the, the story of David is the story in 2 Kings chapter 3. This is the story of Elijah and Elisha. These are two prophets that many of us may not even know. It's, it's, a, it's a word or a person's name that you may be familiar with, but maybe you don't know the full story. But here's what you need to know. God is working through these prophets. He's speaking through these prophets. He's talking to his people through these men. And we see that one of them is now serving the other one. And then we see that later in life, when, when that one is removed, when, when we see that as people are looking for someone to come and do something. Here's the testimony that someone has right here. Read this in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 9. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and when they had made a circuitous, <laughs> yeah, I'm not even going to say that word again, march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Listen to this. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? They're looking for someone to speak to so that God can speak to them. Listen to this. Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. They were actually looking for a prophet, but the testimony was of his faithful service. 
This he poured water on the hands is the idea that he washed his hands and feet. He served him. It was a, it was a way that they would be classified. This is someone, it was a servant that, that came and cared for him. He took care of his needs. And so when he would walk into somewhere, he was wearing sandals, this guy would come and wash his feet. He would wash his hands before meals. And so when they're looking for a prophet, they're looking for someone who can hear from God. He says, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. He was not known by his prophetic work. He was known by his servant work. That's really what the servant said to Saul, wasn't it? He says, yeah, I mean, the Lord's with him. He's a man of valor. He's prudent in speech, but I've seen that he can play the liar. And so when Saul calls for him, don't miss this. He says, send me your son who is with the sheep. Now, let me just tell you, if I have been anointed to be the next king of Israel, I'm telling my dad he can find someone else to watch the stinking sheep. I mean, if, if God has anointed me through his prophet, and he says, hey, this is the next king of it, I have a secret Saul's still king, but I'm the next guy. God said so. Well, if we're to read this story in the way that it plays out, you know what David did after Samuel drops the horn of oil and walks out and goes to Ramah? David says, okay, I'll see y'all. I'm going to go back to the field and I'm going to take care of these sheep over here. And he just hangs out over there. And Saul is tormented by a spirit and they go looking for someone who can play the harp. And there's a servant who one time, somewhere back in the past, saw that David could do that. And so Saul calls for David, who's not yet in the palace. He's not even in his father's house. He's still faithfully serving the father in seeming obscurity. You and I sometimes are so guilty of trying to get to the palace on our own. Work harder, work faster, work smarter. Who do I know? Who can I friend? Who can I take to lunch? Who can I get this? I want to get to the top of the heap. And the story of David says, nope, sometimes the fastest way to the palace is faithful service in the field. Everybody thought it would be one of the older brothers who's tall and good looking and really talented and he's the oldest and the wisest and the most mature and God says, no, that's not what I'm looking for. I don't evaluate people the way you evaluate people. I'm looking for something different. I'm looking for the kind of heart that even when he's destined for the palace, would continue serving the Father. How do you respond to good news? How do you respond to a promotion? How do you respond to a raise? How do you respond to a new house or a new car? How do you respond to your kids succeeding in something? I mean, do we just shout it from the rooftops, not because we're proud, but because we're a little bit wanting people to go, yeah, look at you, you're awesome, way to go. Or do we just kind of put our hand back to the plow and go back to the fields 
and trust God with the future that he's destined for us because God has a plan. God's always had a plan. And I don't know why it's easier for us to believe the plan is going to work out when we read the stories of the people in scripture than we do to believe that he's got a plan for our lives too. Because I've got to believe, I mean, maybe I'm reading way too much into this, but I got to believe when David walks out of his dad's house and he goes back to the fields, I don't know if he talked to the sheep, but I would have. I mean, it's probably got to be lonely out there. I'm assuming he's going, how long do you think until I'm king? How long do I have to wait here, you think? I mean, I don't, I don't even know what a king does. I just, I just watch you guys. I assume if he's anything like me, maybe he addressed the sheep as if they were his army, right? That he, he's preparing to give great speeches so that when he gets there, he's prepared because he's practiced over here. But I don't know. Here's what I know. When God came looking, he found a heart that he could trust. And he chose someone that others would overlook. And when Saul came looking, he found someone with the necessary skills. I think sometimes we get that out of order. And we work so much on our skills that we ignore our heart. today as we just kind of conclude this moment we're going to take communion but before we do we're going to bow our heads and we're going to pray some personal prayer and we're just going to say God help me not to focus so much on what's in my hands that I neglect my heart because when you come choosing I want you to choose me because you can trust me and because you know I'm faithful know you can use me. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. God, I pray today for every man and woman, every boy and girl in this place. God, I pray that we would stop focusing so much on what's in our hands that we would quit trying to network so much believing that that's the way to the top. That we wouldn't focus so much on what we can accomplish as we would on cultivating our heart. It's not about what we can do. It's about who we're becoming. And I pray, God, that we would be the kind of people that you choose because we have a heart that reflects you. That we're faithful in our service to the Father and that we would be okay leaving the details of our lives, the course of our lives, the pathway to our future to you. God, you have our heart today. And for every person in this room who can't make that declaration that 
you have my heart. Lord, I pray today that this communion moment, this response opportunity would say, Lord, I give you everything that I am, including my heart, my skills and my friends and my networks and my experience. I give all that to you, but God, start with my heart and make it all that you desire it to be. So that when people are talking about me, they can truthfully say that my heart beats for you, that my life reflects you. Don't let us play the comparison game, God. Don't let us disqualify ourselves on a criteria that doesn't exist. But let us trust you with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.